tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Stuff is so confusing. Well, it's not as confusing as you might think, but it's it's confusing because you know we we just think we read these things and we read them in our context and in our language and and well we'll get into it. Let's pray first in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's do it. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. We start with a problem. Romans, the fourth chapter, the first verse to the eighth. And we... There's that stupid brothers and sisters again. I tell you all the time, it's not in the text. Somehow, some liturgist somewhere decided to throw in a brothers and sisters to make it sound like it was more personal and more pertinent and more precise and directed to us. It's not. It's part of a larger work. It isn't a snippet of scripture. It isn't a Bible bullet. It's part of a larger work that you can actually read. And what's that book? Um, the Bible. Uh, so the brothers and sisters isn't then there. So the question is, what can we say that Abraham found? Well, what, what do you mean? What did he find? What was he looking for? Well, we will go back to the previous chapter and we will review it. <clears throat> chapter three starts, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? Well, that means we have to go back another chapter. Uh, the, the, uh, Paul has said that that uh, uh, there's a long section on circumcision. I, I think, uh, you know, dear, I will call it the operation so that little ears won't be curious. But uh, that particular operation, what was so big about that particular ob- operation? That particular operation in the ancient world uh, especially the Greco-Roman world, was not as private uh, uh, an issue as you might think. Uh, there were certain sports, and, and uh, the word, the very word gymnasium means a place of nakedness. That's what the word means. Gymnos is, is naked in Greek. And um, the, 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 the Greco-Roman culture, especially the Greek part of it, uh, had no problem with with uh, 
not not wearing anything but that suit that your mother gave you on the day of your birth. Um, so uh, circumcision and uncir- oh that I oh what the heck. <laughs> The kids are probably know more about these things than you and I do. But circumcision or uncircumcision was not as private a matter as it might be for us. So it was a big deal. And what happened was it was a kind of mutilation. Uh, could you imagine uh, having to join a religion that required you to cut off your earlobe? You know, that was nuts. Well, that's the way that the ancients looked at that ritual. Uh, and it was the sign of the covenant. And how did that get to be the sign of the covenant? Well, the best theories I have heard is that um, it is a substitute human sacrifice in a way because it draws blood from the generative organ. Um, so enough. And then this was only done for men because uh, men in the original covenant were the domestic priests and the priesthood was limited to the tribe of Levi, uh, apparently in that the incident with the golden calf. But before that, uh, a father was to be the, the, the priest and still should be the religious leader of his home. And usually that responsibility falls to women. And, uh, uh, um, that's cause we men tend to abdicate our responsibility, but boy, I've gotten off the track. So what we read is one is not a Jew outwardly. The circumcision is not outward in the flesh. Rather, one is a Jew inwardly and circumcision of the heart in the spirit, not the letter. His praise not being uh, from human beings, but from God. So this is an issue. This is a huge issue. It kept Greeks from, you know, the dietary laws and the sacrificial laws were daunting. But what really kept the Greeks from from adopting Judaism was the necessity of this operation to be fully, fully a member of Israel, uh, to convert to, to the religion of Israel, the Jews. You had all sorts of people called the God fearers who participated in the life of the synagogue, who, who read the, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, they were for all purpose and as in purposes and intents practicing Judaism. They were called the God fearers, but they didn't go the whole distance for perfectly good reason. So <clears throat> Paul is, is, is reminding people of this. Therefore you're out, you are without excuse. Every one of you passes judgment. All right. So moving along, let's go to the end of this chapter. Paul talks about in verse 12 of the third of the second chapter, he talks about um, uh, um, this is very interesting. This chapter, he talks about uh, the judgment of God is, is on everyone. And then he says, affliction and distress will come upon every human being who does evil. Jew first and then Greek. Why Jew first? Because the Jews have been given extra instruction. We read elsewhere that the one to whom much is given from him, much will be expected. And then verse 11, there is no, but there will be, uh, verse 10, there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Jew first and then Greek. There's no partiality with God. Um, and then he says, we're judged by an interior law. Now, if you call yourself a Jew in verse 17, and then we are, of course, in chapter 2 of St. Paul's Letter to the Romans, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the, lie, uh, rely on the law and boast of God, um, know, and know his will and are able to discern what is important since you are instructed in the law. 
If you're confident that you are a guide for blind and light for those in darkness, uh, then you teach another, but you're failing to teach yourself. In other words, why are you so interested in all these Greeks becoming Jews and, and undergoing uh, the full uh, commands of the law? So, uh, um, verse 24, for as it is written, because of the, you, the name of God is reviled among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So, circumcision, to be sure, has value if observed the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That's like <laughs> the guy who drives around with Jesus bumper stickers and cuts everybody off in traffic. Okay, so the, the chapter concludes, one is not a Jew outwardly. True circumcision is not outward, but in the flesh. Rather, in verse 29, rather one is a Jew inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart and the spirit, not the letter, uh, so St. Paul is talking about what is required to be a Jew. Now, remember, I think uh, the, the letter to the Romans is this kind of foundational document that is trying to establish a way for the church in Rome, the community in Rome, to embrace both Jews and non-Jews, thus creating a universal church, not just a Jewish sect. So we get to chapter three, finally. We're going to get today's reading, I promise you. What advantage is there then in being a Jew? Or what value is, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every respect. For in the first place, they were entrusted with the utterances of God. So he's looking at Judaism as, um, as a prophetic, as a prophetic uh, task in a way, that the Jew is to be a light in the world. Uh, what if some were unfaithful? Will their infidelity nullify the fidelity of God? Of course not. God must be true, though every human being is a liar, uh, that you may be justified in your words and conquer when you are judged. So uh, he talks about the universal bondage to sin. This is that wonderful uh, um, uh, idea that, that, um, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, no one, no one is innocent, Jew or Greek. No human being will be justified in his sight, however, by observing the law. I threw in the, the however. So he reaches the, 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 the center point of his argument in verse 21 of this chapter. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though testified to by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now let's put in the words, the righteousness of God through trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, for all who trust there is no distinction. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. The Jews are a failure at it. The Greeks are a failure at it. So this is the heart of his argument. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Christ in Jesus. Now, people hear that and say, I don't have to do anything. God has given me grace. What is grace? Oh, dear, I'm going to get way off the topic. But I I understood grace quite differently when I was in a car accident. I am not always the most cheerful of persons before coffee in the morning or <laughs> even after. And I went down to church to say Mass, hadn't had any coffee before Mass or any, you know, I just went straight into the church. But I made the mistake of stopping to re to, to, to answer the phone as it was ringing. And it was a hospital. And I had to 
run from the altar to the car and zip down to the hospital after mass. No coffee anywhere. <sighs> I'm so virtuous. I, I was rejoicing at the sacrifice. Humbug. I'm kidding. I was, I wanted a cup of coffee. Well, I'm at a light a couple blocks from this hospital. Um, and bam, this guy hits me from behind. I get out of my car. I looked at the back of my car. It wasn't a bad dent. It matched all the other dents. And this guy came out of this car was, was rust held together by duct tape. And this gangly tall fellow came out of the car and he said, oh, he said to me, I said to him, do you have insurance? And he said, Romanian. I said, your license? Romanian, Romanian. And I said, I can be polite in Polish. I can handle some German. Italian. I can do Italian. It's it, it's close to Romanian. Romanian, Romanian. I just, uh, I forget it. Got back in the car. And on my way to the, the last couple blocks of the hospital, I shook my fist at heaven and I said, Lord, I was trying to be a good priest. And this, I didn't deserve this. And the little voice inside said, no, this was an undeserved favor. What? That's the classic definition of grace. Grace is an undeserved favor. God's purpose in your life is to make you look like Jesus. What does Jesus look like? Galatians, the fifth chapter, the fruits of the spirit are these love, peace, patience, joy, self-control, all those things. God wants to make you look like Jesus. So I was receiving a gift from the Lord to conform me to the image of Christ, which was his purpose. We read that in Romans, the eighth chapter, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first of many brothers and sisters. God wants to adopt you. So he's got to make you look like Jesus. That's the heart of this. You don't obey the rules. So you get the golden ring from the nose of the bull. You don't collect the, 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 the little, the little tokens so that you get to heaven and, and, you know, you, you look at you, things checked off in the book or not checked. That's not what's going on in our life. Redemption is the process of making us look like Christ, conforming us to the image of Christ that the Father might adopt us and make us his sons and daughters. That's, that's what grace does. Grace is what God gives you in 24 hours a day to make you look like Jesus. Jesus slammed me in the back of my car on my way to grudgingly do something that was good, grudgingly. <laughs> and what was he trying to do? He was trying to make me more compassionate. He was trying to make me more patient and more forgiving. And I didn't like it at all. You see, that's what grace does. It conforms you to the image of Christ. It isn't like a bank account that you towed up and, oh, I'm going to get a really nice house on the, the street in heaven. That's, that's what Jesus, well, that's what Paul is saying here. You, you can, you can think, I've obeyed all 613 commandments of the law perfectly, so God really owes me. God doesn't owe you anything. If you think that's what it's about, you fulfill the requirements, you check off the boxes, you get the mansion on the street of gold in heaven, that's the rules. No, you must be conformed to the image of Christ in order to, to inherit God's royalness, God's kingdom. So that's what it means to be justified freely by grace. What does justification mean? I tell you this all the time. It means to look like God. You're justified freely. God wants to do this. 
by his grace. You know, well, we all know what grace is. It's the beams of light that come out from the clouds in the holy pictures. No, grace is what God gives you in 24 hours to make you look like Jesus. And tomorrow, you get another 24 hours, you start all over again. So, and how do you receive, how do you receive this? Jesus, I trust in you, this wonderful blessing of getting hit in the back of my car by a fellow who probably didn't have a driver's license. Thank you, Jesus. I trust you in this mess. Justified freely by what God gives them. And what does redemption mean? Through the power of Jesus buying you back from slavery. Um, it's so hard to really change the way we look at this because we're raised to think, well, you get up there in heaven and Peter looks in the big book. And if you got more checks in the good, in the good column than the bad column, you're in. You might not get much of a house, but you're in. That's not the way it works. God wants to make you look like Jesus. I remember uh, hearing the story that all preachers use about about uh, Michelangelo. He was, and this is a true story. He was asked, how did he get those saints and angels and prophets out of the big blocks of stone? He said, well, it's easy. God puts the saint or the prophet in the big block of marble, and I just chip away everything that isn't the saint or the prophet. The father looks at me and he sees Jesus and he begins to chip away everything that isn't Jesus. Some of us are going to be very little dashboard statuettes, I have a feeling. So this is, <clears throat> this is what God's doing. Is there occasion then for boasting? No, it is excluded. On what principle? That of the law of works, as we said yesterday? No, on the law of trust. We consider that a person is conformed to the image of Christ, is justified by trust, apart from whether or not you break a clay pot that's become unclean. Does God belong to the Jews alone? Does he not belong to Gentiles too? Yes, also to the Gentiles. Hooey, there we are. Now we are finally at today's reading, and of course, the usual time is over. God belongs to the Greeks and not just the Jews. And then he goes to, I'm going to keep going. What can we say that Abraham found? our ancestor according to the flesh. Has it ever, now, now this is, I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz and I discussing this. <clears throat> Abraham was not Jewish. What? Abraham was the father of the, yes, Abraham is the father of the Jews. Of course he is. But he wasn't Jewish. You couldn't be Jewish until Sinai because the 613 laws of Sinai, of the covenant of Sinai were unknown. I remember Rabbi Levka said that um, <clears throat> that that uh, uh, yes, but God, by a special blessing, made Abraham aware of the law, and so he kept kosher. And I used one of Rabbi Levkovitz's own just points with him. Where is that in the Torah? He said, "Remember the story about the three visitors who came, and they Abraham made meat and milk for them, which of course isn't kosher." Yeah, the Bible doesn't say he ate it. Ah, uh, so that was real Talmudic reasoning there. I, I have a feeling that militated against his argument. Abraham is the father of the Arabs. He is the father of many nations. He is the father of Israel through Isaac. And, and the legitimate bloodline of Abraham comes down to the Judeans through Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's son Judah. 
But there were many nations who, who sprang from Abraham. So Abraham could not have been justified by works of the law, Paul is saying, because there was no Mosaic law at that time. The rest, if you understand this concept, that the law had its purpose in creating a people uh, who were aware of the nature of God, uh, creating a people from whom the Messiah could spring. When the Messiah came, those 613 commandments of the law were unnecessary. Only the 10 that reflect the nature of God most fully uh, remained. That's how we look at it. Oh, there's so much more in this. Um, but the point, the point of it is, uh, that, 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 the, the religion of Israel as presented to the world by the tribe of Judah at the time of Christ was essential in preparation, but it was not at the heart of what God wanted to do. God wants to adopt us, not just to, to make us do what he wants us to do. He wants us to do it because we are his children. I hope this makes some sense to you, but this argument has torn the Christian community apart for five or 600 years. You know, the Reformation really started 500 years or 100 years before before uh, Luther. So, uh, you know, uh, Tyndale and Wycliffe and, and Huss, and, and they they just thought that, well, no, that it's... It, it clearly says that you believe God and you don't have to do anything. Again, they hadn't read the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, I'll stop there, and we're going to go to letters. But first, we'll uh, we'll go to our uh, our Catholic Order of Foresters toll free line at eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. I'm going back this summer. Once again, I would like to greet our listeners in the town of my ancestors, at least my great-grandma, Schmalzigau, Elisa von Schmalzigau. She said it was fun, but I don't know if it was. But so, Zinzanati, as they call it, in Dayton. Oh, boy, there's the Hofbräuhaus House across the river in Newport. Mm, that's food. All right, moving along. I'm... Oh, when you talk to a German, eventually we get to the topic of food. All right, now let's I'm go hungry. to letters. <laughs> the voice of my aunt just said, now I'm hungry. All right. All right. This is from Cilia in Atlantic Beach. Please help me understand how the Christian celebration of the Mass started with simplicity, such as the Last Supper, and came to have fancy altar rails and pews. Celia, you're making an assumption that the Mass started with simplicity. These were Jews. And Jews have a very developed liturgy. Uh, there are lots of, of uh, oh, what's the word? Lots of rules and regulations on, on 
the synagogue service and this the the mass started in the context of 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 a passover supper which is they call it a passover the word for a passover is a seder it means the a seder is really the order of service so this idea that well it was simple they just bread and wine and talked about jesus and that that didn't happen these were very liturgical people and they really saw very early on that the sacrifice of the mass that's what they called it early the korban that this that this sacrifice was the messianic sacrifice uh the thanksgiving sacrifice for which there were very precise rules in fact as i have the theory that they celebrated on sunday because they couldn't celebrate it on saturday because it was essentially a, a private uh or, or a personal sacrifice uh one of the peace offerings and you couldn't offer one of those on sabbath you had to offer it the day after sabbath these were people who followed liturgical law and understood liturgy, very developed liturgy. And the temple was one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And when the church developed, it, the churches were modeled on the temple. You had the, the holy place, then you had the holy of holies. Uh, you had the, the, the narthex in which the congregation sat, and then you had the inner, the inner part, which represented heaven, the sanctuary. It was very, very developed. And people say, well, we should go back to original Christian simplicity. Didn't understand the liturgical nature of, of the disciples uh, and how accustomed they were to develop liturgy. John probably was from a priestly family. John, the beloved disciple, I think the case can be made. He was from a priestly family. And he would have been very aware of the demands of Jewish liturgy. And when we look at this elaborate, these beautiful buildings and and beautiful vestments, and, well, if you're lucky, beautiful music, though that's getting rarer and rarer, My Little Pony. Um, you don't have to play it. You don't have to play it. Uh, well, maybe you do. But the uh, um, uh, think of it. A poor man can go into the same building as a rich man and sit down next to a rich man in those pews, and he can hear beautiful music and see a beautiful liturgy and see beautiful art the church is meant to be the palace of the poor and we have made churches look like abandoned pizza huts uh people who want to return to the simplicity of the early church do not understand the nature of liturgy or the liturgical life of the early church so um celia your assumption is that the early church liturgy was simple and it wasn't it was very very beautiful, I suspect, and very elaborate, and it used the same beautiful music and chanting that was probably used in the temple. All right. That's, at least that's my suspicion. All right. Let us go. Now, this is oh, this is a rather long letter from Roman. Thank you. And, and uh, he's mentioning uh, the, uh, the men's conference uh, for the Rockford Diocese that's coming up, and I'm looking forward to that. But he said something that is really interesting. We're talking about the the origin of the sign of the cross. Um, that he mentions that Jewish people were making the sign of the cross a tau, uh, a tau. Uh, that's the letter T, which was uh, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it really did look like a cross when it, the original tau. Now it looks sort of like a, a round sort of thing, but. Um, they would make this tau on their phylacteries. Phylacteries were were boxes, leather boxes, in which were written the uh, 
a Bible called Hero Israel, and you would tie them to your wrist and your forehead uh, to pray. Uh, so uh, interesting that Roman is saying that he has read that the sign of the cross actually goes back to a pre-Christian Jewish origin. And I had never heard that, so I'll, I'll have to look that up. But that's interesting, Roman, and thank you very much for that. I'll have to do some little research on that. Um, okay, let's see here. We've got, um, <laughs> this is Dave talks about, uh, I deduce that you have trouble finding the cursor on your computer screen and not the mouse. Yeah, you're right, to be precise, but the mouse, that's the mouse sound. I think of it as the mouse because the little thing does kind of look like a mouse and and, uh, you know, I, I cursor, I don't, I try not to do that. All right, moving along here. Um, let's see here. This is, um, this is, oh, by the way, 888 A lot of lines open. So do call in and, and ask me wonderful theological questions to which I will give long and, and overly pedantic answers. But let's get back to the letters. Pamela says, often, I think it's a great suggestion. Often recently, when war is being discussed on TV news, I grab my rosary and start praying it. That's great. You know, when you watch, if you watch TV news, take Pamela's suggestion, keep a rosary handy and, and say a decade or something for a disastrous story. I think that's pretty good. All right, let's see here. Now, this is um, from Christine. Uh, about Sunday's gospel, the invited guest from Sunday's gospel who didn't put on the wedding garment, like you said, he was invited but rejected it. Um, is that the grace of baptism? Could it be that he was baptized but committed mortal sin and took off his wedding garment? I know it's an analogy, but think of all the people sitting at the wedding feast at Mass every week without their wedding garment due to mortal sin. That's interesting. Wailing and gnashing of teeth if they don't repent. Yeah, the uh, the putting on of the wedding garment is accepting the the grace of repentance, and the sacrament of confession of penance is very instrumental as part of it. I think that's a good point. Uh, a lot of people come to the wedding banquet, and many are called, but as the scripture says, few are chosen. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Let me do one more letter here. Okay. What do you think about older married men becoming priests, free of the obligations after raising children and done with retirement? They can help, well, done with retirement, they can help say Mass and help the padres of our parishes who work so hard for the people. Well, you know, that, that's an interesting thing, uh, the idea that that you might take an older man, and that, that is done. Um, if a person is widowed or divorced and annulled, um, Sometimes they are encouraged to to train uh, for priesthood if they're if they're not too old because it takes you know four or five six years to to train for a priest. We believe it or not, we probably get as much schooling as a doctor. But um, there are some problems with it, though. Um, I think, especially in the case the situation where a person is divorced and annulled. Um, I, I don't know if they do this, but I think it would be very advisable to find out why that person was divorced. Um, St. Paul says elsewhere, be not anxious to lay hands on, uh, on everyone. In other words, to ordain everyone. Um, I, I think it, 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 the word presbyter means elder. 
Uh, and everybody, oh, we want a nice young priest. No, you want an old priest, someone who knows what's going on and has a proven track record, and you know to be good and holy and virtuous and uh, and sane. Uh, sometimes we, 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 I remember when I was ordained, oh, young priests were going to do everything. <laughs> yeah, most of us, half of us crashed and burned. So um, the word priest means elder, and I think it is not a bad idea for older men uh, to, who are free, who are, uh, 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 able to, to commit themselves to celibacy because we, we do still have that requirement. And I think there's great use and wisdom for it in our times. Um, yeah, it does happen. And so just remember the word presbyter means elder. A young elder is a kind of contradiction in terms though. St. Paul says that Timothy shouldn't be intimidated by people who look down on his youth. Timothy was a saint, I'm not so much. All right, that said, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And, of course, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. Again, that's 888-914-9149. Got a lot of lines open. Today, we'd like to thank Steve, who is listening in Wisconsin, for donating his 1981 Kawasaki motorcycle. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting RelevantRadio.com slash car. That's RelevantRadio.com slash car. Father Simon says on Relevant Radio. We just assume the Gospels are evangelistic texts and they're histories. They're not. They're historical, but they're not histories. They don't tell us what color Jesus' hair was. They don't tell us what he did up a Friday night. They don't tell us what his bowling scores were. I mean, they're not, they're not biographies. Well, they're biographical. <laughs> I had to throw that in. Definitely biographical and historical. But the point of the missing... Well, I'm digressing before I digress. Let's go to the word of the day. This is Luke, the 12th chapter, the first to the seventh verse, the gospel, which I didn't even mention. But I want to talk about the leaven. Beware of the leaven. That is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Okay. Hypocrisy. That word sounds awful in English. It isn't. Hypocrisy, when I call, if I call you a hypocrite, that means you're dishonest, you're, you're lying, you're trying to fool people. The person that the hypocrite really fools, first of all, is himself, because the word hypocrite in Greek meant play actor. It was a common word. Oh, my favorite hypocrite is in a play downtown. I'm going to, to see him and maybe get his autograph. That's how common a word it was. A hypocrite. It's absolutely common. And, and you know, that, that, that think about it, you know, that uh, uh, sometimes we get to church and we just, we get into church and we just get this pious look on. I love it when, when people start using God language, you know, they kind of talk like this, like normal people from the South side. But then when they're in church, it is thou and thee. And, O oh Lord, thou dost vouch, thou, thou vouchsafest, and thou dost deign to... You. What? You know, the people who speak fluent uh, King James English, you know, uh, or, or, or Dewey Reams English, and uh, 
they just get really pious in church. Of course, on the road, they're a terror, but when they get to church, all of a sudden, there's this transformation. They're convincing no one except themselves of their own sanctity. They certainly don't convince God. That's the play acting. And the Pharisees thought that by external observance, as St. Paul says in the first reading, that, well, a Jew was supposed to be a good example to the world, and they were going to make sure they were good examples, and everybody was going to see how very pious they were. Uh, that uh, that's, that's like leaven. Leaven was a sign of corruption in Jewish thinking, um, that Jesus uses it in a positive way in some of his parables. But in general, leaven, the symbolic meaning of leaven in Hebrew thought was was an uncleanness. And the day before uh, Passover, you have what they call the search for the leaven. You go through the house with a light or a lit candle, and you look, uh, you've cleared all the leaven you can out of the house, but you do this symbolic search just to make sure that you're doing your best. Why is leaven a sign of corruption? Because unseen, it fills the whole loaf. You know, leaven is, you know, once you mix it into the bread, the yeast into the bread, it's, meh, you can't, don't even know it's there. But then it starts growing and it's, it's the, the, the loaf becomes full of air. It becomes full of nothing. That's why leavened bread is, is uh, valid matter, not, not licit. It's not licit. It's not to be used in the mass in the West. In the East, though, in the Byzantine churches and, and the Orthodox churches, they validly use leavened bread. Uh, because the leaven adds nothing to the loaf, and that's part of its destructive nature. It fills the loaf with nothing. It makes it look big and wonderful, and it isn't real. So beware of the leaven. That is the play-acting of the Pharisees. It is so easy to fall into that, to think I am religious because I feel religious and I look religious. Remember, as uh, C.S. Lewis says, God doesn't care if we feel charitable. He wants us to be charitable. The devil's quite content if we feel charitable, just so we aren't charitable. You see, I don't want to feel pious. No, you want to be pious. Uh, that's the leaven of the Pharisees. All right, that said, let us now go to phone calls. Hello. Hey. You talk. I'll listen. Well, I'm probably going to talk, Jenny. But what can I do for you, Jenny, from Scottsdale, Arizona? Um, well, Father, about the liturgy of the hours, uh, some lay people say it, but I often have to remind myself that it's the prayer of the church because yeah. it's it's hard to um, um, read different way of um, that. Psalms were constructed, and well, um, I'm not one too much for poetry, so I guess my question is, how do you love it? Oh, oh, it provides, I love the Liturgy of the Hours because it provides a structure, you know? Sometimes you feel like praying, sometimes you don't. But the Liturgy of the Hours, as does the Rosary, it provides a structure for prayer. And, you know, I, I shouldn't tell you this, but there's a way to cheat. You can get an app on your computer or your cell phone if you if you do that kind of thing that will just put it all together for you and makes it very easy. Some people don't like that, but 
it's the Psalms. So, no, the Liturgy of the Hours provides a structure for prayer so that it helps you to pray when you don't feel like it. Remember, love is what you do when you don't necessarily feel like it. So I hope that, that the app, uh, maybe if you have trouble figuring that out, find someone who is uh, a computer geek, as we would say, and uh, they'll help you do it. So, well, thanks for calling in, Jenny. God bless you, and I hope that helps a little bit. Let's go to Cecilia, who's calling in. Oh, you're welcome. Let's go to Cecilia, who's calling in from Austin. Father. Cecilia? Yes. What is the difference between the words Hosanna and Hallelujah? Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that means praise the Lord. Yeah, remember, the YHWH is the unspeakable name of God. It's related to the word for, uh, for being and for creation, to bring into being. And you don't say the YHWH out loud, but you can say his God's nickname, which is just Yah. So Alel is to praise, and Alleluia means praise Yahweh. <laughs> I dare say it. Praise the Lord. Hosanna, on the other hand, is an Aramaic word, which means save us now. That's what it means. When 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 Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem, the crowds were shouting Hosanna which they were shouting, start the revolution, <laughs> save us now. Does that explain? Yes, thank you, Father. You're welcome, you're welcome. Let's go to Stuart uh, from uh, Aliso Viejo in California. Hey, Father, how are you? Yes, I'm good. Quick, what can I do quick for you? Com- quick- yes, sir. Uh, there was a call that made me think of a question, and I had a quick comment on that call is when the lady was asking you about going back to a more simple mass and that you were, you were yeah. going into how, no, it wasn't as simple as it. So I'm thinking maybe what she's really talking about there is maybe during the persecutions, because obviously they couldn't have a huge mass if they're stuck in the mm-hmm. catacombs doing mass. But at any rate, as far as <clears throat> that's concerned, in an apocalyptic scenario <laughs> when there's absolutely, God forbid, all the priests are dead, how will we ever have mass again? You won't. Or and, if you're you know, in an it's area a where bit, there is no priest at all. You know what I'm saying? How, they how, don't. Would we, Japan, how would we get around that? The, the priests were all killed in Japan uh, after the evangelizing by people like St. Francis and other and the Jesuits who evangelized. There was a Christian community in Japan, and, and the the government killed as many Christians as they could find, and there were no priests for centuries, and yet they maintained the faith. And these secret Christians were found when Japan opened up. But no, without without priests, you don't have mass. Uh, look at the, the Mexican Revolution, in which the, the government, the Freemasonic government, the leftist government, tried to do away with the church, and priests were extremely limited and often killed. Look up uh, St. Miguel Pro. Uh, um, he was... He went back to Mexico, just lived as a private citizen, but he was secretly a priest who said mass. They found him and shot him. Uh, and the faith became all the more precious to the Mexican people because it was denied them. But without without uh, the sacrament of holy orders, we can't have the sacrifice of the mass. You know, So I think we need to understand that and to value the holy sacrifice of the mass in a way that it should be valued. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Appreciate oh, it. Oh, and one more little pontification. It is a bit of a myth. Well, it's a total myth that the Christians hid in the catacombs. 
uh, they didn't. The catacombs were just, uh, if you've ever been there, <laughs> you can't fit a lot of people yeah. in them. But they did have chapels no. in the catacombs, and they did say masses in the catacombs, small masses in honor of the martyrs. So saying mass over the bones of the, the relics of the martyrs went back to the very earliest church. But the thing about, about catacombs was uh, Romans had a great respect for the burial of the dead. And uh, religions, foreign religions were forbidden uh, unless they were older than um, the founding of the city of Rome. Those were thought of as ancient religions and were allowed. Judaism was allowed. Christians were claiming to be Jews, and a lot of people who were Jews were saying, no, they're not Jews, they're a completely different religion than we are. And so Christianity as a religion was not allowed, so they tried to pass it off as a burial society. And that's just kind of an interesting dimension because they did bury the dead. So uh, uh, Romans would allow these burial societies without question. New religions? No way. Burial societies? Yes. So we're a burial society, <laughs> and um, they would dig catacombs. But if you get a chance to go to the catacombs in Rome, it's it's really interesting. But if you do go to the catacombs in Rome, don't get off the beaten pack path because if you get lost in the catacombs, well, your, your bones are going to be with those of the martyrs. <laughs> Cecilia Metellus, a great restaurant by the catacombs, a voice in my head just said. Well, God bless you. Thanks so much for calling in, Stuart. More more Thank than you. you needed to hear, right? Okay, God bless. Let's go to Rita. <laughs> Let's go to Rita from uh, the, the, the Woodlands in Texas. I think that's what it's called. What yes, can sir. I do for you, Rita? I didn't, I didn't get to hear the beginning of your explanation about the word of the day, but the little bit I heard um, is tied into what I'm asking you about why our um our prayers like the Lord like the Lord's Prayer and Hail Mary are um old English. Our Father well, who they're art not old. in they're... heaven, hallowed be but thy it's name. Not, it's yeah. It's thine yeah, oh, I, yeah. Hail Mary the same thing. And that it frustrates me and when I say the rosary to myself, I use Hail Mary full of grace, the Lord is with you. And so, yeah, and you know, I just anglicize it. I don't know what the term is. No, that's that's fine. You just modernize it. But no, it's fine either way. But very interestingly, the these and the thys and the thous, those are the second person familiar. They aren't formal. They're informal. Like German has z and du, and Spanish has usted and tú. Most languages have a formal and an informal second person singular and plural. And in English, it was, I know, thou knowest, he knows. We know, you know, they know. You know was the formal. So they used the informal. Richard Nixon, I believe, uh, was from a Quaker background. And all his life, his mother called him thou because that was informal. And it, you, you didn't use the formal because that was arrogant. So if, if we think of thou and thee and thy as being very formal. They're not formal. They're just old-fashioned. And God understands you, and God understands thou. So do what do what is most comfortable for you, Rita. God bless you, and thank you so much for calling in. Let us go to David from Texas. David, what can I do for you? Uh, Father, uh, another call from Texas. So I have uh, been a, a Catholic all my life, and as I get older, I'm having a prayer issue, and I've discussed it with my priest. And I don't know if it's a psychological problem or whether it's demonic, but it seems like the deeper I get into prayer, for example, say in the rosary, or if I stare at the holy shroud picture and I kiss a statue of Mary, as I'm saying deep prayer, 
I get uh, interrupted by thoughts, bad thoughts, yes. not just what, yeah. you know, what am I going to have for dinner tonight, but is this something yeah. that, and, and I have to shake it away, I either shake my head and I, I well, feel like I'm sinning and I can't, and I can't control it. And yes. uh, is it, what, well, go ahead, tell me what you think. Well, I, I think, I think, I think it may well be demonic. And, you know, I have learned, and I learned this from an exorcist, believe it or not, the devil really hates the Hail Mary. Um, if, if when a thought crosses your mind, in prayer, out of prayer, that shouldn't be there. If you just say a quick Hail Mary, it doesn't even have to be pious. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. The devil hates it because it reminds him of the sacredness of the human body, especially a woman's body. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And you just say that Hail Mary, the devil hates it, and it gives you 10 seconds to think. and think, no, nah, I'm not going to worry about this. Now I'll go back to reading my brief. You're reading the Psalms. So the Hail Mary is a very powerful prayer in, in spiritual warfare because it's quoting scripture to remind the devil that the human body doesn't belong to him. And the, to the degree that this is demonic, that really does help. So that's what I would do. Well, you're already praying and you're having a thought. Well, with intention, say that quick Hail Mary, and, and I think the devil will be upset by it and start leaving you alone. That would be my you, suggestion, you David. The th you're, you're the third priest that told me something very similar. You think they didn't go into as much detail as you did, but they gave me the same same results so i appreciate it give it a much. shot but Hi, remember Bob. it's got to be it's got to become a habit a habit of vice yeah. is only overcome by a habit of virtue so i'm never going to do that again that doesn't work but is, if you, is, if you is substitute a, a habit of virtue well, is this a temptation one priest told me well you know christ was tempted in in the desert yeah and i said yeah but what he was worried about was stones and bread and i'm thinking nasty well, things all yeah. in the hill mary well, you know, but look at what Christ did in the desert. When the devil tempted him, he defeated the devil by quoting Scripture. And when you're saying the Hail Mary, you're defeating the devil by quoting Scripture. This is the angel's greeting to the Blessed Mother, Hail Mary, full of grace. So so that's, do what Jesus did. When, when a thought crosses your mind that shouldn't be there, be it for bread or for something else, then you it, use, that, use the Hail Mary trick. But it's got to become a habit. So I think that's very important, David. All right, let's go to Brooke from San Jose. We just have a minute, Brooke. What can I do for you? Father, I'll make it really quick. Um, Good. I wondered if you could explain to me a little bit about what general confession is and when a circumstance would be for doing that. Yeah, it's a life review. And when it's a very good thing to do on, for instance, on a retreat. Uh, or if you're going through, like, like Lent, when you're really examining your life, it would be a good thing, a general confession. What you would do is you'd make an appointment with the priest because it takes a little while to make a general confession, and you don't want to have everyone in line behind you sinning by getting mad at the person who's occupying the confessional. So you'd make an appointment for that with a priest, and, and it's a good thing when you're doing a kind of life review as in a retreat. Speaking of life reviews, every show that... Drew does is a review of life. Well, not every show. 